Let's do clap. One, two, three. Hello, my name is Elmira. I'm from Kazakhstan and I study in social anthropology program at Central European University. And I'm Grace. I'm from the US and I'm in the Nationalism Studies program. In this podcast, we're putting a spotlight on student research that explores historical, cultural and sociopolitical issues related to Central Asia. We will also play with our positionalities as insider and outsider, both culturally and academically. With these different perspectives, we'll try to untangle common assumptions or cliches about the region. Every episode features the work of a student guest, and together we'll explore the questions that drive their research forward. Okay, we need to say something in advance. We recorded this episode in March during the holiday of Central Asian New Year, Nowruz, and we invited a special guest, Zora Said, our classmate. Zora did her PhD research on the beloved poet of the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes. He traveled to Central Asia in the 1930s, uh, and we are very excited to hear about her work on this topic. So, welcome, Zora. Welcome and happy Nowruz. Happy Nowruz. Ah, thank you, Nowruz Mubarak, to both of you. Nowruz Kutlubolson. Yeah, Nowruz Kutlubolson. How did you say uh, that? Nowruz Mubarak. Nowruz Kutlubolson, yes. Oh, wow, cool. I didn't know there was another way to say it. So Mubarak is in, in Uzbek? Farsi. I mean, Uzbek say it too, but yeah, it's just one of the many ways we can wish well. Mubarak is blessed and prosperous, yeah. Um, so tell us more about um, that background. Were there a lot of other uh, Uzbeks in Afghanistan and in the place where you grew up, or were you guys uh, the only ones? What was that like? Yeah, well, let's talk in general like about yeah. your uh, identity and history, how you ended up in the U.S. and how it like drove your research. Yeah, um, yes, uh, northern part of Afghanistan in the city center where usually Uzbek Turkmen um, small population of Kyrgyz, small population of Uyghur. So um, mm. that's probably how our family got mixed throughout because we have Uyghur, Uzbek, and Qibchak. So it's like a mix of multiple. But I was born in Jalalabad, Afghanistan. And um, then we left. So we didn't stay long in Afghanistan. I mean, I didn't grow up in Afghanistan. I grew up in uh, Saudi Arabia and in um, mostly Brooklyn. So I came when I was five. In Jalalabad, we were the only... There were two Uzbek families. Uh, that's in the eastern side. So it's always unusual when they hear my dad speaking Pashto without an accent. So, And why did you move? Uh, well, the war. And it was a little before the war. Um, well, the before the war kind of, I guess, heated up. Um, so it was, we came as um, uh, migrant workers to Saudi Arabia. My dad was a dentist, so he had a, his mother lived in Saudi Arabia. She was um, uh, Uyghur and she remarried and moved to Saudi Arabia. So he wanted to meet his mom and he took us along. And so we ended up uh, staying there for four years. And then when it was time for me to go to school, I couldn't go to school because um, the Saudi system was like either made for Americans or made for Saudis. And then the schools run by Egyptians weren't um, open for non, non-citizens and non-cardholders. Like, so mm-hmm. we ended up uh, coming to the U.S. for that, really, for education. So, 
And also there is a story I know how your grandfather probably, it was grandfather who moved from Uzbekistan to Uzbekistan. Yeah, so originally we're from uh, Uzbekistan. Originally um, we're from, um, the family is originally, we're from Marghulan. Um, during the, uh, my grandfather is actually educated in Moscow. So um, he fled after the, um, they've caught his uh, brother, his elder brother, um, who was working with um, the uh, Uzbek nationalists and who were against, um, uh, I guess, counter-revolutionaries or Korbasha. Mm -hmm. I can't say Basmacha, I think, although abroad it seemed okay, but I guess, you know. Why can't um, you say it? It seems to be a very contested word, but I think it was like, it was a flaring, I guess, sort of like spectacular word we still used. But um, I think the actual term is Korbasha. And um, so he was what's called like Ikiyuzchilik uh, or Ikiyuzlik, like it was like a double agent. So he was a governor in Tashkent and then he passed over information to the other Korbashes. And so he was caught and our family was massacred and he fled. Uh, my grandfather came because someone had slipped him a note to come to come back to uh, Uzbekistan and kind of he fled with his uh, brother. The only one who survived the massacre was an 18 month old brother. Wow. So he took him and they actually traveled through Kazakhstan to Ila, China. They just say like East Turkestan, so I don't know which city in that area. But And then from there, my grandfather went to India, actually, and after selling opium, became <laughs> very wealthy and opened up like a film reel factory for Bollywood films, which is kind of interesting. And then 1930s, he went to Afghanistan because he was interested. They said the it smelled like Watan. It smelled like yeah. the home country. So he bought land in Baghlan which is like Turkic areas in Afghanistan. And um, when they found out he was a dentist, they said you should serve um, Jalalabad because that area didn't have dentists. And he trained a dentist and then he left his brother there. He, my grandfather uh, finally moved during the partition when factories were looted and then he went over to Afghanistan. So that's kind of our history. It's like all over. What an amazing family history. It is all over. How do you know? It comes out in the cooking. <laughs> How yeah. do you know all those details? Who were telling that? Who is the history keeper in your family? It's my dad. Wherever I think our family sort of settled roots, um, there was a war that followed afterwards or mm -hmm. a splitting of a, of, a, of a country in the case of India. So we have a very small family and my dad is the story keeper. So he's the storyteller. Wow. Does, does, he, um, does he document this, write it down or is it, um, does he tell you and another family members about it? Yeah, well, he raised, I think uh, the reason why I became a writer was because mm -hmm. there was an urgency to keep this story that it felt like it was a story that wasn't told. And then there are many other stories like this, like uh, we're part of a Turkestan diaspora. So even in the part of Brooklyn, even in Saudi Arabia, we were, you know, sort of in a community of other Turkestani people. Yeah. Um, one of our main themes of our podcast is discussing uh, how to understand this region in terms of uh, geographical scope, um, cultural unity, all of these things. And I think Turkestan um, to me just means like this monument site in the south of Kazakhstan. And as we've uh, taken this uh, history class together, I've learned more about it as a region, but I'm still a little fuzzy on it. So um, could either of you explain 
what does that mean? Why is it considered pan uh, Central Asian? Um, and then maybe Zora also, uh, do you consider like Afghanistan to be part of Central Asia, like unambigu unambiguously? Um, yeah, what is your conception of, of space in that way? Well, I'd love to hear from Elmira on what Yeah, I can conclude maybe that the story that you told about your grandfather is very similar to stories of um, refugee from Kazakhstan during the famine time. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are a lot of stories of people fle fleeing the country through India, through China, mm -hmm. and some of them stayed in China, some of them moved further to Iran, to Turkey. So I'm sure there are a lot of those kind of stories. And I think, I mean, in terms of uh, definition again, right? If you're going back to the term Central Asia, how we can define it. So if we focus on processes and different historical processes that were happening there, I think this is something common that we can talk about, for example, with you. and we can describe Central Asia through this um, event that mm. kind of affected the lives of people who were moving same with same routes, with same kind of paths. Defining is, the region based on uh, what historical events affected people. Yeah, and what, what kind of patterns those mm. historical events kind of gave birth to. And then the geography is kind of repeating, right? So China, India, Afghanistan, mm. Iran. So it's more or less all together. But we can say, for example, that those countries, like we cannot put India or China to Central Asia, right? That those countries were these kind of corridors for people moving mm. from Central Asia and building this diaspora around it. Well, um, for... Us, Turkestan was really just everything covering everything geographically from Turkmenistan uh, all the way to Kyrgyzstan, and then that's West Turkestan, and then East Turkestan uh, was just where you know Xinjiang or where Uyghuristan or whatever you want to call it um, is. Uh, so that was the the span of it, and and now I see how problematic it is because it covers a lot of Tajik area and Persian-speaking areas as well. The north part of Afghanistan is known as Afghan Turkestan, and then it became uh, Qataran, be more inclusive of um, both Tajik and uh, Uzbek and Turkmen and, and other groups. So for me, that's the cover before it becomes split into, um, you know, the the different tribal tribes or ethnic groups like Uzbek and Turkmen and those nation states. So that's what Turkestan is. So for the diaspora, it's mostly people who immigrated, whose ancestors immigrated before those breaks or when the country was newly sort of set up. You know, it's not just religion that motivated a lot of that uh, counter uh, revolutionary sort of because there were others who wanted to merge it and mix it within indigenous culture and language. So would love to hear about your work uh, with Langston Hughes and his trip to Central Asia. Um, and I thought a good way to start would be just each of us kind of sharing uh, how we relate to this because it's very different in all sides. So um, I'll start. I was so excited when I saw Langston Hughes on our syllabus and my mind was just kind of blown um, because back in you know middle school, I think is when I first read his poetry. It was in the curriculum 
And my teenage brain had decided it really didn't like poetry, but there was something about um, his poems that cut straight through that. And I just felt kind of a wisdom um, and a gentleness, not, not to say that he isn't with, with his uh, political critique, uh, it's, very, um, it's very sharp. But you just feel this kind of love for people. And as a reader, um, you, you pick up on that. So uh, it was so exciting to me to, to hear about this connection. Um, I, I even taught Langston Hughes. I, I taught um, English last year at an international school and I put him in the, um, in the plans and the curriculum. And my students loved him. And if only I'd known that you know, I, could, I could make this connection for them. But even without any context, without ever having been in the US, they could still connect with his poetry. So I, I wonder, as we hear about um, his trip, I wonder if that was similar for the people he encountered. I wonder how they responded to him, um, uh, not, not necessarily understanding um, his personal context of, um, of being a Black American. Um, yeah, so I'm excited. <laughs> This case actually is interesting for me in terms of political meaning, right? In terms of how the political context made it possible, right? For him to come to Central Asia, why Central Asia? How did he get in? And this, because I study these same years um, from a very different point of view. I'm looking at famine and crisis and I just think of it as these wild, crazy times. And then, you know, here's Langston Hughes just traveling around <laughs> and i think those times also like shortly after right all these refugee waves happened in kazakhstan and probably uzbekistan so your grandfather left langston hughes arrived yeah and then i remembered actually how a picture also of uh, james baldwin being in uh, kyrgyzstan in already 80s so and then i kind of presume that there is this pattern of this friendship of literary workers like poets and writers between each other and also the question of ethnicity race uniting this soviet ideology so tell us what you have discovered about this interesting crossover well, I think that there's so much, and I think the reason why I was interested in the photo that I saw of Hughes with um, other Central Asian writers and poets that I found on the internet, just as I was like about to give up my PhD program and go think of going into dentistry was um, the time period and how that relates to my family history. And also the glib comment, which is like most of these Central Asian poets have probably, you know, were killed and we don't know who they are, but it when I did my research, it turned out to be Ali Tukumbayov on one side, who's the father of Kyrgyz poetry, and mm. uh, Shali Kekalov, who was a Turkmen poet. Um, uh, and then the others were, I think, mostly Russian uh, Russian or, or Eastern European uh, poets in that, uh, in that photo. But I was really fascinated by that image, and it, was, um, it sort of beckoned me yeah. to kind of come and do the research. And at Yale... Um, the notebooks came first and I thought there was like a full manuscript. Those are the notebooks came first. And when you're sort of in touch with all this like handwriting and illustrations and just like scribbling notes and the action, the movement of like, and it really affected me quite deeply. Um, 
because I'm I'm a New Yorker and Harlem Renaissance was really big for our like studies and um, for my my own identity thing or sort of understanding of identity and politics uh, and activism when I was in college. So uh, it was an important um, moment and I had never made that connection before. But of, of course, it was like internationalism sort of. Soviet internationalism was big in Harlem as well. There was an office and it's sort of how Hughes's friend uh, recruited him to come and it was the depression. So it's a good time to kind of leave the U.S. Jim Crow, great time to definitely great time to leave the U.S., right? So I think Hughes was interested in, he said he wanted to meet the people of the world and make connections with them. So um, and Hughes himself, and I think you kind of said it in the way you read his poems, has a lot of humor and there's um, so many references or notes for him complimenting his smile and sort of his openness. So there's a sense of hospitality and generosity in his personality that seemed to really connect with, I think, Central Asian, um, the writers mm -hmm. and the poets he met there because he would just smile and just enter into these situations without being... Um, what Arthur Kessler was like, was like sort of obsessed with neatness, cleanness, and kind of upset and sort of rigid. But Hughes was very open. And like I said, I think, I don't know where I said it, but when everyone sat, the Turkmen people he had met sat and drank, ate from one bowl of soup, he dug right in and ate with them and sat with them. And that, that means you're joining in that community and you're not uh, keeping yourself separate. And so I think that effect, but he's the first who petitioned to go to Central Asia. So he's the first African-American to go. And they wanted to, he wanted to see uh, South, right? The Soviet South. Uh, and so it was approved, but there was a very organized sort of trip for them and the other African-American actors and writers and, and uh, artists who had come on that trip as well. And just general workers. There's also um, African-American engineers, archi uh, not architects, um, agriculturalists who were in uh, Uzbekistan and in um, Turkmenistan, but mostly in Uzbekistan, who are developing the cotton collectives there. So um, when he gets to Ashgabat, he jumps from the organized trip and he just goes off on his own. He does that several times on all of his trips, like to Cuba and to you know, China and wherever. He, so he believes in this... Uh, uh, that's that kind of optimism and love for the world and for humanity that I think allows him to enter a place where he doesn't speak the language at all. You say that um, he wanted to see the South. And uh, in a previous conversation, you said he wanted to meet people of color. How much was he drawing parallels between uh, his experience in the U.S. and the American South and Soviet Union, the Soviet Union South? Well, I think the places he went were cotton collectives. And so that in mm -hmm. itself... Uh, was that and um, Gerald Sheffield who's this great artist also went he just came back from Uzbekistan uh, he's an African-American painter and uh, artist and he said he had the same feeling so we were talking a lot about you know um, Hughes's trip and his discussion and then his own trip but there is something about the American South that it resonated with um, a few a few writers who went back who went to visit uh, south of, of Soviet Union I guess or south to Samarkand which is the topic of his essay and also he was uh, in his journals you'll see a lot of places where he notes where it says like white only or like you know sort of during the czarist era the different places that separated uh, native indigenous people from um, uh, specifically russian spaces right so he does document that and he's very interested in 
uh, the people he sees because he sees a, a connection. He's like, this person, uh, like uh, Korbanov is one of the people he meets on the train. And Korbanov, he says he could pass as African-American in the U.S., but here he's a governor and this is his background. And so there's a constant uh, drawing of face, facial features and noses. And, you know, um, there's, there is that. He's making notes and he's comparing it to uh, the American, you know, to Jim Crow and racism, right? Uh, those places where we can kind of break that. And that's why he was so optimistic about um, the Soviet Union or the Soviet vision, because it created a sense of, uh, equality and it created a sense visually at least for him when he first went there of course he didn't know about the famines mm -hmm. they made sure he was fed properly and had like um, access to uh, good things um, and he didn't know a lot and that's one of the criticisms of Arthur Kostler who was aware was critical but then on an everyday level with people he couldn't he couldn't connect like there was that even when he writes, what is it, Darkness and of Noon, he writes about a Central Asian character. He really create, turns him into a kind of a monstrous, brutish wow. figure uh, versus the kind of personality that comes out in Hughes's work. So he may not be aware of the struggles, but what he saw were the everyday human connections, I'd say. Yeah. So just to get, mm -hmm. um, to get our literature straight here, um, there's I wonder as I wander. I think you said that there's something about the trip there. Like what are, what are all of the things that people could read, find in the library, find online uh, about this trip? So South to Samarkand is in I wonder as I wander. Yeah, and then um, there's a at the Yale archives there's a, an essay he wrote about harems and dancing boys for Ladies Home Journal. There's, of course, the more leftist stuff that he had written for, depending on what journal he was writing for, the tone and, and sound changes. So um, so he knew what his audience wanted, right? Mm -hmm. it, sort of Orientalism in one hand and then, you know, really a critique of um, race in, in another essay. So uh, then he, of course, the one we read for class, which is A Negro Looks at Soviet Central Asia, which is available everywhere. So he was the first translator of an Uzbek poem. So Rafa Ghulam's poem he translated with um, a, another Russian uh, translator. They worked together and then it was published in, I don't know, it was in a leftist magazine. It was quite, it was one of the first. So, and he's also the first to be translated, um, American poet to be translated into Uzbek. So. Um, yes, that reminded me of another question that I had. Uh, I, I know that Hughes is known for playing around with style and poetry and uh, trying new things, and that especially he had a lot of respect and love for oral traditions that were in his community, and that he brought those to poetry um, in, in a really fresh way that people responded to. Um, and this made me think, I think there was even an essay, maybe you can remind me what it was called, but it was like, the mountain of whiteness, maybe, or Americanism, saying that um, that the black community he was in uh, was styling a lot of their work after white culture, and that that wasn't necessary. Um, and I find that really relatable to a lot of the things I've seen in Kazakhstan. That young people are are um, responding more to things done in Kazakh and things uh, incorporating traditional elements more so than when I was first in Kazakhstan, when that, when that was kind of seen as uncool, except for maybe in a few different small circles. 
so yes, he did. Um, he did incorporate a folk song and um, a sort of a, a natural way of speaking in his poetry. I think it's part of that modernist turn of taking something, taking all the myth and folklore and turning it into something new in language. So he definitely had that. Um, he did teach at factories and um, writing in factories and in places. So in a sense, he was affecting the short the shortness of his poems, the lines you can see in a lot of, um, I don't know if I should call it communist poetry or sort of like Soviet era poetry, but I mean, people weren't using Soviet so much in the 1932, but um, communist aesthetics meant that it was simpler. It was, um, you know, salt of the earth type of writing. And they did see Hughes as an example of that uh, to teach the writing classes. So what it means to them. Um, he was mostly documenting and being more of a journalist, being more of a historian, being more of an anthropologist, I feel like, uh, in the area and studying the people and making sure he caught the voices. So in that sense, mm -hmm. the journals are important, the diaries, um, because in those diary notebooks, you have like full uh, um, like bus conversations that he overheard and someone translated for him, um, you know, sort of folk songs that were performed and translated for him. I like the one uh, that's in the chapbook I have, um, which is buried under all these books. But um, in, in the chapbook, it was one of the translations that never got published, which is about um, this very coquettish type of uh, poem. Um, it's very Uzbek in style. And it was uh, interesting. He was able to catch the sounds a lot. So I think the notebooks, which is what my dissertation was on mostly, annotating and writing the notebooks, all the things that weren't published, and he didn't access because of um, not only Jim Crow racism, but also McCarthyism and the Red Scare. And so he pretty much hid away. That's why he gave his uh, trunk of Central Asian material away. I think the dream of what he had in mind or the ambition of what he was going to publish didn't match the publishing market at the time. What about now situation? Is it possible to reassess this whole like research work and publish somewhere somehow that's what i'm doing yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's my work so that's the dissertation work and that's the uh translating the stuff that i found and kind of establishing you know um just a deeper understanding of his trip there and the annotate like having the actual notebooks transcribed which is what i did and then annotating it and then connecting it and then taking the different parts from the different library. And there's one more notebook I found mm -hmm. in California and then there's the pandemic and I couldn't travel, but one more notebook from his series that I'm interested in finding. So I am interested in bringing back, bringing that sense of community he built when he was there and kind of reconstructing it. Uh, for me, that was most important in the work. Um, it comes through in the, in the diaries and things it comes through in the unpublished uh, material, uh, I think. So that's what I've been working on and the photographs. And, you know, so I don't really look at the published stuff. I look at all the stuff that wasn't published in uh, making those connections. And what do you hope people will get out of this? Um, in particular, I'm curious, how do you think Americans might, or what do you think Americans might get out of this? What do you think Central Asians might get out of this? There is this important role of the curator. So basically you are playing this role of the, of the curator of this whole narrative, of this whole story. So 
yeah, what is the, let's say, purpose of this project or some, I don't know, potential that you see there? Um, at least in the dissertation, what I did was one to really look at the first impression writings that he had done, which I think in some cases are quite beautiful, the poems, all of that. So for me, I thought there's a lot of raw material here that never um, was published and should be. And I think there's a lot of issues, questions about, you know, should you publish unpublished things or do writers really want them? I went to the shrine of um, Hughes, which is his home, and then uh, the Schomburg where his ashes are interned. So I feel like I did a lot of visitation and meditating. And I was like, you know, I think I really would want this, this stuff needs to be out because his perspective and his like, you know, there's a lot of Central Asian uh, um, books out or travel stories about narratives about Central Asia that come off being sort of the expert guide to look at. But I, I wanted whatever he had written in full to be out there. But I wanted to create the sort of um, works he was collecting as well, because he was also curating something. So he, he had collected the Turkmen, Soviet Turkmen poets. He had collected, you know, Ali Tukumbayov's chapbook, his first book. Um, he had collected the Uzbek poems. He had just collected all these things, and he was a, a really great hoarder of every little scrap of paper that it ever. So I kind of wanted to reconstruct, again, that sense of community he built and the stories he was telling. That was not just about him interpreting the world, the world or how he saw it, but you know, he does something where it's like. Um, it's like a Sufi concept, and I talk a lot about, you know, how he operates through love. It's sort of the singular becomes plural because in his poet voice, he's able to carry the voices of all these poets that weren't published, mm -hmm. died too young, or, you know, it sort of offers this time capsule in it. So he becomes multiple voices, and I think that's what's interesting about Hughes, uh, what he was curating. He was translating who he chose to translate, why he chose to translate, uh, what's the function of the translator? It is interesting case of, again, putting Langston Hughes in this context of outsider and insider. Mm -hmm. So being outsider in Central Asia, he made some input in his inside position in, yeah. in the US. So that is, yeah, that is really fruitful exchange of, yeah. Yeah. What's also great is that he photographed the uh, black engineers and agriculturalists there. And so we get um, a history of their contribution to the building of Uzbekistan. So I think that's mm -hmm. something that Central Asia would benefit from um, that documentation and the notation of that in their history. So I think that would be useful. Yeah. Wow, that was a great conversation. We'd like to thank Zora Said for sharing the details of your project. Please find more about her and her work on zorasaid.com. Yes, and thank you for listening. We hope to share more interesting projects on Central Asia with you soon.